WHMP. And welcome on this Thursday afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited. Brian Adams, you're once again going to thrill me with... Space. Space the is the place. Uh, as spacey as I am, usually that's, a, that's not a good thing uh, to come on the radio, but I can be spacey today because we have, who is now our official resident astronomer on the afternoon buzz... Kimberly Ward Duong, she is a professor of astronomy at Smith College. Um, Kim, thank you for coming back. We had you last on in the end of February, I believe. So yeah, thank you so much for having me back. Um, and also, uh, it's great to be here because we talked last before the big telescope launch, and now it's in space. The big telescope, meaning the James Webb Telescope. So we talked in uh, in February. And James Webb, the world's largest, most powerful, most complex stereotype, uh, space telescope, you were ecstatic when it made it into orbit a million miles away from Earth, but no images had come. But now images are coming in. So is that happening? Is it a good thing? Are you ecstatic? Oh, yeah. It's uh, basically exceeded all expectations, which is the best part. Um, we had many benchmarks for it to pass kind of technologically in terms of unfolding correctly and then getting all the mirrors aligned and then having all of the instruments work. And now that we're actually getting our first data, it's just absolutely magnificent. It's better than anyone had hoped. And you are one of the researchers, so your research is part of this whole program can you tell us about your research and what you're hoping to accomplish, and have you accomplished it? Is it something that will take years, or do you do it quickly once the images come in? Yeah, so um, we are really excited because I'm part of a, what we call an early release science team. So um, there are various teams that were basically tasked to take the first data, the first scientific data with the observatory. And the team that I'm on, our goal was to try to take an image of a planet orbiting a nearby star um, with a very special technique that is on the cameras on JWST. JWST is? The James Webb Space Telescope. Got it. Yeah. Um, and so within the first month of data coming in, we were able to take some data of a star that we knew had a, a Jupiter-like planet orbiting it um, and actually see the light from the planet in wavelengths or colors of light that no human had ever seen before. Um, and so that was a kind of big result that came out um, like a month or two ago. Wow. And what did that tell you? So that is telling us a few things. The first thing was basically to tell us how sensitive the telescope and camera is and um, how well it performs, but also to tell us a little bit about the atmosphere of the planet. So once we start taking measurements in different colors of light, different wavelengths of light, we can start to use that information to figure out um, what is the atmosphere composition, how hot is the planet, and maybe even a little bit of information about how it might have formed. Wow. You know... <laughs> Buzz just keeps going. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I, I was looking at the questions I asked you in February, and, and while, while you're answering them, I sort of get it, and then when I go back, I try to explain it to my wife or someone else, like, well, I, uh, well, uh, um, and this whole thing of being able to look at light images and know the atmospheric content of a star, you know, trillions of light years away, right? Not trillions, but lots of light years away. Yeah, how, thousands. How do, you, how, do, how do you do that? How do you get the atmospheric concentration by a photon of light? I don't get it. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think really, so light is essentially the key for astronomers. It's the 
Um, it's basically our way to decode the universe um, because we can't, unfortunately, go out and take some sample of the thing we're trying to measure. We can't scoop up a little gas volume from the planet atmosphere and like come back and analyze it here on Earth. So we can only use light to kind of get information about what's happening in space. And so luckily for us, the entire periodic table full of elements um, each element has a very specific sort of fingerprint, like a chemical fingerprint um, that it produces on light. So an atom or a molecule has a very unique signature. And so we can look at different colors or wavelengths of light to try and see if, uh, if the light is bright in some colors and faint in other colors that suggests the presence of a kind of molecule that might be absorbing some of that light or emitting some of that light. Um, so we're kind of re-engineering the chemistry by looking at light patterns. And you're looking wow. at, a, at a, you're look, you're looking at a picture of a tiny thing a, of light. A tiny point of light, yeah. And, and through the picture, you can ascertain all of this stuff. Yeah, and one thing that is really cool about this first planet that we looked at with um, the telescope is essentially we only got four pictures, like four colors of light. Um, and two of them we had basically tried to measure from the ground before, but it's much harder, even on the world's biggest telescopes on Earth's surface. And the other two colors of light are the brand new ones that only JWST can do that no one had ever seen before. And we combined that information with um, information at kind of bluer colors of light that you can measure from the ground. And once you start to see all the different kinds of light that the planet can give off, then you can start to kind of reverse engineer, okay, well, maybe this planet has methane in its atmosphere. Maybe it has ammonia or these other kinds of chemical signatures. Wow. I was uh, on the NASA website. I just heard you well, Brian. I did. I know, but it wasn't. It was a little less... Uh, <laughs> than what I anticipated. Well, you're I a scientist. No, 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 no. It should have been a wow. We all have the wow moments. Wow. <laughs> um, I was on the NASA website um, this morning, and I was looking at the images, which really are wow. I mean, they are mind-blowing. It's like a, you know, a psilocybin-induced Salvador Dali. I don't know what else to, to, to say about it. It's, and I really encourage listeners to go onto, onto the sites and look at them. But they're in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is James Webb giving you photos in color like that, or are they doctored up somehow? Yeah, this is a great question. So um, because, and this is a question that people often have when they see images of space, which are vibrant and rich and colorful. Um, and what actually happens is when we take images from these telescopes, from Hubble, from JWST, the images are all in black and white when we get them off of the camera. Um, but those black and white images uh, have been taken with like essentially a piece of glass in front of the camera that only lets through a very specific color of light. So if we wanted to make a three-color image here on Earth of the light that we can see, we could actually take what would essentially be like a black and white picture in green light and then another one in blue and then another one in red. And if we combine all of those together, we would get a picture that's like how our eyes can see. And our eyes are actually doing that in real time. Our eyes have three different kinds of cells in, um, in the back of your retina that can see blue or green or red, and it's combining all that information together. So when we see images from JST, we're actually doing something really similar in that we are looking at infrared colors of light, which are redder than the human eye can see, um, but it's kind of like heat. Um, and if you take three different images and three different colors of infrared light, then you can assign one to be blue and one to be red and one to be so-called green and combine them together and kind of see if we could see, if we with our human eyes could see the infrared glow redder than red, that's what our pictures would look like. That's what we would see. What does infra in infrared mean? It, it means beyond, essentially beyond red. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, and it's the light that, you know, uh, snakes hunt their prey by basically sensing heat from like little mice running around. And um, so there are animals that actually have abilities to sense infrared light that we do not. And that's a big difference between the Webb telescope and the and the Hubble, right? The yes. Webb can see infrared while the Hubble looks at visible light. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of the of 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 the Hubble, um, up until the Webb, it was the go-to telescope. Yeah. Um, do you think it's up there right now? It's been going strong for thirty-two years. Yeah. But do you think Hubble is up there? Right now, going, oh, 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 Web, why was there a Web? No, one, no one's paying any attention to me. Um, is, it, is it relevant? No, I, I think it's probably the opposite. It's probably thinking like, oh, I can do things that JWST can't do. And so look at me, I'm still relevant. Wow. Um, because uh, they're very complementary, the two, the two observatories. And in fact, um, there are things that people, like galaxies that people are looking at simultaneously with JWST, with Hubble at the same time, getting uh, basically two different complementary views on the same kind of thing and getting more information that way. So it's it's wonderful. It's actually absolutely wonderful we have them operating at the same time. And how long do these space telescopes last? I mean, Hubble's been up for, what, 32 years? Yeah. And still going still strong. Going. Yeah. So at what point does a telescope stop producing images? Well, we are hoping that Hubble will last significantly longer. Um, it's close to, cl much closer to Earth. It's in low Earth orbit. And so... In principle, um, in the past, astronauts have you know gone in and put in new cameras in Hubble and kind of fixed things. And so it's that, reachable. By it's astronauts. reachable. Yeah. Uh -huh. Whereas JWST is a million um, light, or sorry, a million miles away, um, and we can't physically go there and change things. But one thing about the launch that we were super happy about is the original mission lifetime was like a decade, mm -hmm. um, and that was based on essentially how much fuel it would take to get the telescope to a million miles away from Earth, and then use fuel to kind of point it in different directions, and eventually that will run out. When we launched it on Christmas Day of 2021, um, the launch went so picture perfect. It was way more efficient. We used way less fuel, and now we think that JWST will probably be functional for 20 years. I thought the power came from solar electric, photovoltaics. There's Is that, that too. Right? Yeah, there's that too. So uh -huh. there's multiple multiple uh, methods of, of pointing the telescope and, and giving it energy, and they kind of go together. But it's got actually a fuel source within it mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, along with the photovoltaics. Wow. Let's get back to the images that the James Webb uh, has, has taken. Is there any image that has stood out for you like, oh, you know, that's transformed your way of thinking or other astronomers? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm partial to the first pictures of these planets, but even before that, um, there was a the very first kind of image that was released was the new what we call a deep field. Um, and when Hubble, uh, you know, kind of mid Hubble's lifetime, there was a plan to basically point it at a totally empty, totally quote unquote blank patch of sky that didn't have anything in it, and just stare for two weeks straight and just collect as much light as possible. And when we did that, we produced what's called the Hubble ultra deep field, which is every single point of light in this image is a galaxy, a really distant galaxy. It's really like this beautiful, expansive view of the cosmos. What I love with uh, the very first images from JWST is they pointed the telescope at that same blank patch of sky that Hubble looked at and saw even more than Hubble was able mm -hmm. to see, even more distant galaxies, fainter points of light. Um, and it was just magnificent. We see massive clusters of galaxies kind of warping space and time and bending light in fun ways. We see all these little tiny pinpoints of what are some of the earliest galaxies we think have formed. 
Um, and it's just really astonishing to see. You know, Brian is a scientist. He always comes to interviews. He, he's super prepared, and I hate to steal your thunder. I have a question that's burning. I love the movie Contact. It stretched my imagination, and and there in the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, for those of you who've seen it, reminding you, there's this tension between science and faith. And I always wonder, when you're looking at the cosmos and you're looking at things that happened billions of years ago and the creation of galaxies, uh, does, don't you do what schmoes like me do, which is wonder how does happen, when did it happen? I mean, does that happen to you like it happens to me? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's kind of an essential... I think probably essential, an essential part of humanity is asking these questions like, where did it all come from? Where did we come from? What is the purpose of it all? Um, and I think astronomy is a really beautiful way to kind of like think about where we are in the universe and the cosmos in that bigger context. Um, and uh, like sometimes the metaphysical comes in and considerations of faith and what is ultimately happening, the, basically the questions that science can't really answer. Um, but a lot of scientists are able to kind of hold both of those things in mind at the same time. Um, in fact, the Big Bang Theory was from George Lemaitre, who was a Jesuit priest um, who had no conflict with the observation and his... Oh, that's thing. so interesting. The yeah. Big Bang Theory was by a Jesuit mm -hmm. priest. Wow. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're talking with Kim Ward-Duong. She is a astrophysicist and a professor of astronomy at Smith College. We're talking about all things James Webb, all things space... And stick with us. We'll be right back. This is Space. the Afternoon Buzz Final with frontier. Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMT. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Poti. In my practice, I see an average of six people a day with a heroin addiction. They all tell me the same thing. They started out abusing pills. And 70% of the time, they got them from family or friends. Sometimes they were given them, and sometimes they stole them. We have to keep prescription drugs out of the wrong hands. If you're not actively using a medicine, get rid of it. Don't save it for a rainy day. Let's get these drugs out of circulation. This Saturday is Drug Take Back Day. It's happening across the country and locally at over a dozen locations in Western Mass. Drop off prescription drugs. No questions asked. Don't flush them. Don't toss them in the trash. Bring them to one of the drop-off locations. Prescription drugs lingering in medicine cabinets leads to heroin use. It's a simple fact. So please, if there are meds hanging around in your house, get rid of them safely this Saturday from 10 to 2. Find a drop-off location near you at the Northwestern District Attorney website. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more 
at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. If you are on the Eversource reduced electricity rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, coppower.coop. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, greasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Welcome back, and we're talking this afternoon with Kim Ward-Duong. She's a professor of astronomy at Smith and an astrophysicist. Do you, do you call yourself, Kim, an astrophysicist or an astronomer? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question, um, and you'll get different answers depending on uh, who you ask. But my PhD is in astrophysics, so technically I am an astrophysicist in that regard. What I do in terms of taking data from big telescopes and telescopes in space is observational astronomy. So either is fine. Um, but the prevailing joke that people in my field will say is that if you're at a cocktail party and you want to talk to people, you tell them that you're an astronomer. If you don't want to talk to people, you tell them you're an astrophysicist. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened 66 million years ago and why that's relevant uh, today. 66 million years ago, the dinosaurs had a really bad a really day. Really bad day, yeah. Really bad day. <laughs> Asteroid hit the Earth somewhere, evidently off the coast of Mexico, all mm -hmm. this debris in the atmosphere, major dramatic change in weather events, tidal wave coming across North America, total eco ecosystem collapse. Mm -hmm. um, and could this happen again is, is, is the question. And NASA said... Yeah, it could. And very recently, NASA sent this spacecraft into space that smashed into this asteroid. And what was up with that? What was the purpose of that? Yeah, so so this is, a, I think, some of actually the most important astronomy that people can work on in modern times is basically the search for what we call near-Earth asteroids or asteroids that might come too you know, close or too close for comfort to Earth's orbit um, and may pose a risk for impact. Real quick, wh what is an asteroid? So an asteroid is like a like a large, rocky boulder of various size. could be a few uh, kilometers and, and larger or smaller. Um, and these are leftover remnants from the formation of the solar system. So they exist, a lot of them exist in kind of this belt, this asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter. Um, but they're actually asteroids all through the solar system that's kind of just leftover debris from making planets. Um, and they're just orbiting around and some of them get kind of close and occasionally very small bits of them will fall into our atmosphere and uh, as a meteor shower or you might actually see a meteor, meteoroid or meteorite on the ground and those are the same kinds of materials. 
And so why this rocket ship fired into the asteroid? Yeah, so the, the DART mission is essentially NASA's uh, efforts to ask ourselves the question, if we saw that there was a potentially hazardous asteroid on a collision course with Earth, could we send something up to redirect it? So could we basically nudge it away from its trajectory, away from its path toward Earth, and kind of send it off on its own way, not to have to worry about it again? Um, and the really cool thing about the DART mission is uh, what they did is they had basically a binary asteroid, so actually a, a slightly larger asteroid with a little asteroid going around it. And their plan was to hit the smaller asteroid and see if they could basically adjust its path enough that you could see how it orbited the bigger one in a slightly different way. Their goal was to only like move, basically get it closer to the big asteroid where its orbit was like, you know, a couple minutes faster, only took a couple minutes faster to go around. And they actually changed its trajectory by like 30 minutes. So it took 30, it was like 11 hours to make it all the way around. And now it's like uh, 10 and a half or something like that. Um, so we were too successful, actually. We were very successful at redirecting this little this little moon around an asteroid and showing that we could basically sh chart it off course. Wow, that is so so interesting. What Can they do that to QAnon? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what what could possibly go wrong with this? My ca the Castrofarian <laughs> in me thought, saw, oh my God, we're going to redirect this asteroid, and now it'll come. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they're darn, you know, they send obliterate up. the right. sun. That wasn't mine. That wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't my bad. Um, coming in today for this interview, it's just the beautiful New England day. I mean, it's just so gorgeous. A little past peak, but that's okay. In the bluest of sky. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, why is the sky blue? Ooh, Kim's coming <laughs> in. We can ask her why, a little digression here, but why yeah. is the sky blue? Yeah, so so it's a great question. Um, and it comes back to this idea that astronomers, you know, we're kind of obsessed with light. This is the thing that we measure. Um, and so when light enters the Earth's atmosphere, when sunlight enters the Earth's atmosphere, um, it can basically... Uh, be deflected depending on what color of light is coming in. And sunlight is basically white light, which means it actually contains all the colors of the rainbow. Um, but what happens is if you have little tiny particles of uh, dust or very small molecules in Earth's atmosphere, like teeny, teeny, tiny ones, um, they are actually better at taking certain colors of light and scattering them in a different direction. And what happens is all the blue light gets sort of left over, and that's what we end up seeing, whereas the red light gets sort of scattered away. Um, it's a slightly different effect when you see a sunset and you're looking directly at the sun and uh, if the you know, atmosphere is really dusty with bigger, bigger particles of dust, then you start to see more of a redder color. So it's all about the light coming in and which light basically makes it through. Well, through the particles of dust yeah. in the atmosphere. And we're not to look at the sun directly, correct? Yeah. Yes, please do not. <laughs> please do not do that. <laughs> um, when getting back to these images that are coming in of the James Webb, do you have a, a, a suggestion of a website folks could go on to look at some of these images? Is there a better one than? Oh yeah, than um, I would say so. From NASA.gov, there is the uh, there's like a blog, like a JWST blog that gets updated at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, um, and they tell you when the next big splashy new image is going to be is going to be visible. So actually, just uh, last week. Um, the very f there's a very famous image that Hubble took called the Pillars of Creation. I think it's probably one of the, the most famous, um, Eagle Nebula, the most famous things that Hubble looked at. And we looked at it again with JWST in a different color of light, see a totally different view, way more stars. Um, and that was one of the splashy uh, NASA blog, like, we have a new image coming up, check it out. Um, so I would stay tuned to that if you're kind of trying to stay with the up-and-coming results. So going on to the NASA site. The NASA site and the uh -huh. JWST blog, yeah. Uh, in case you're just joining us, we were talking with Kim 
Ward Duong. She is an astrophysicist and a professor of astronomy at Smith College. And now, most, hold on, now most famously, the resident astronomer on the afternoon bus. Wow. (laughs) I just want to say, if intelligence, uh, uh, married enthusiasm, it's palpable in the studio. I love being in the studio with you, Kim, and you, Brian. And I I wish uh, listeners could see how Kim talks with her hands, which is really very engaging. And I'm sure you're a wonderful professor. One of my questions was going to be, you know, what do students get hope to get, or what do you hope they get out of your astronomy class? But we will leave that for another time. No, it's, it, listen, although this is radio, if you wait one million years, you will see the light from Kim's hands. Yes. You'll yes. see the Except image. Except it may be 12 billion years. 12 billion years. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you. Thank so you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're going to be back with Ruth Griggs. We have the director of the Vermont Jazz Festival. I just can't wait to meet him. What a great day. We'll be right back after these messages. Ground control to Major Tom. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom's. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Some Amherst officials are questioning the use of the term the Amherst Nine in reference to nine youth that were questioned over the summer by police and told they had no rights. The Progressive Coalition of Amherst, Sunrise Amherst, Defund 413 Amherst, and People of Color United are using the term as shorthand for teenagers that were stopped on July 5th, saying it's an explicit connection between what happened in Amherst to the Central Park Five, according to the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Counselor Annika Lopez and Dr. Shirley Jackson Whitaker issued a statement this week saying it's profoundly disrespectful for anyone to use this association so loosely, and it's traumatic to witness these civil rights pioneers' mistreatment made light of by a sensational comparison. A portion of Route 141 Holyoke Street was closed due to a motor vehicle accident earlier this morning. According to East Hampton Police Department, Holyoke Street was closed between East Green Street and Spring Street due to the accident. Route 20 in Chester was also shut down just west of the center of town earlier today. Chester fire crews were on scene putting out a house fire. No further information was available. A man from Chicopee is a winner in the Massachusetts Lottery's $2 million 50 times cash word instant ticket game. According to the Mass Lottery website, Paul Romanovitz of Chicopee has claimed the $2 million prize. He chose the cash option and received a one-time payment of $1.3 million before taxes. He bought his ticket at Quick Pick Convenience located at 452 Chicopee Street in Chicopee. Mostly sunny, breezy this afternoon, a high of 62 to 66. Clear skies tonight, evening temperatures 50s and 40s, an overnight low of 28 to 34. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 54 to 58. Mostly sunny, low 60s on Saturday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. 
Hello, I'm Sheriff Patrick Kaling, and I'm honored to be the Democratic nominee for Hampshire County Sheriff. I hope you will stay with me and vote Kaling in the general election. Early voting starts on October 22nd, and Election Day is November 8th. And remember, a vote for me is a vote for a kind, compassionate, and progressive future for corrections in Hampshire County. This ad was paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Kehillane. What happens in high school stays in high school? Not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. High school is a time of discovery, of how you'll be in the world. At the Hartsburg School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods, for instance, or the garden, or goat barn. They study history through the lens of architecture, or art, or music. There's time to be young and curious and unhurried. High school isn't a race or a contest. It's a journey towards self-determination. Hartsbrook High School students learn they can handle adversity and cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world. Plus, they sing together. Schedule a visit anytime. Visiting day for current eighth graders is this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 8 a.m. until about noon. Spend time with students and teachers and see what high school at Hartsbrook is really like. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And what a terrific day for me. First, we had an astrophysicist explaining the Webb uh, uh, Space Telescope, and now we have Ruth Griggs. Uh, Ruth, I always love your segment. What do you have for us today? Well, we, we have uh, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Wow. Um, the whole universe? A- absolutely. <laughs> and um, he happens to be, of course, a jazz pianist, what as well as the uh, director of the Vermont Jazz Center, which we're going to talk a lot about, and that's Eugene Newman. Um, hi, Ruth. Hi. Hi, Eugene, who's talking to us from the, the sunny hills of Brattleboro, Vermont, which, uh, which is near and dear to my heart. You know, I went, to, I went to Bennington College. I don't know if you knew that, Eugene. No, I didn't know that, but I know your sister lives in Putney. My sister lives in West Chesterfield, and my family's oh, okay. had a farm in West Chesterfield since 1964. Mm. So uh, many, many years in Brattleboro. But that's not what, why we're talking to you today. <laughs> I just, <laughs> but it just shows your affinity for our lovely Yeah, family. yeah. And, uh, and, and so I, it's just nice to have you on the show to talk about um, whatever you want to talk about relative to the, the Vermont Jazz Center. And the reason why I think it's so important for our listeners here in our area to know about it is that it is such an incredible resource. It's a unique resource that is worth a beautiful drive up, up Route 91 to Relatively go to. short drive. Relatively short drive. It's like four to 35, 40 minutes. We right, li- from Northampton. From Northampton. Close. We like to stop off and go to Magpie for some pizza or Hope mm. and Olive for a fancy dinner, and then you continue, continue up the way. I've and, always uh, said if Northampton married Brattleboro, Greenfield would be their child. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on in Brattleboro, too, now. It's a really hopping, hopping town. But anyway. Um, it's an arts town. It is an arts town, and the Vermont Jazz Center is very much a part of that community. Um, 
I I loved the, you know, reading again about the history of the Vermont Jazz Center and how when you took it over in the late 90s um, from Attila Zoller as the director, Eugene, that your vision was a nurturing environment. Mm. And and that's that's what really, I think that speaks volumes for who you are and what you have brought to the Vermont Jazz Center. So can we talk about that a little bit? Like, what have you done? Um, what do you want to talk about relative to making it a nurturing environment for musicians? Wow, what, what an interesting question, um, because that really is our goal here. And I want to say that, uh, that I share that a lot with my wife, Elsa Barrero, who um, has been there every step of the way and has really helped um, guide that vision, because that's also something that we share very much, that we want people to feel like they're uh, a part of a community, that it's not just something that's happening outside of them, but they're an integrated part of the Vermont Jazz Center. And that comes from, um, you know, giving people a voice. And I feel that, that jazz music is a music that gives people the opportunity to express themselves through improvisation. And we wanted to model our administrative and um, community outreach much in the same way of jazz so that people are welcomed to come and and express themselves in in their own unique way um, as individuals. And and so the way that we did that was that we created a jam session, which still to this day, 25 years later after I started it, is, is something that happens every week so that people can come. And then also that we have we really make an emphasis to do a youth jazz ensemble. We really have an emphasis to uh, allow students to come to the jazz center for free and that people who can't afford to come here um, to pay for tickets, then we have a really easy way for people to just do some quick volunteer work so that they can do that in exchange for tickets. So we really want the jazz center to be something that is accessible to everybody um, and, and not to have jazz be an elitist music. We so want the jazz center to be what, that. yeah, that's what the whole world should be like. Right? I love the fact that you don't want it to be sort of an elitist environment because I do think that that jazz can can sort of slip into that no into that nomenclature. Um, and and I, I do think that's an important thing to resist. Um, well, I, I think Ruth and Eugene, it, it's really interesting because we all want to see musicians get paid. So there's this natural inertia to charge ticket prices and, and uh, that, that adequately reward these extraordinary, skillful people who have spent their whole life right. honing their craft. You want to see them rewarded. I think it's just amazing that you found a way to both promote those people, be nurturing towards those people, to the young ones who are coming up, give them a platform, and at the same time be sensitive to the economic uh, ability of the people who should be exposed to this. I, it's pretty remarkable, Eugene. Well, Buzz, I really appreciate your noticing that because um, we subsidize our ticket prices. Uh, um, people, um, our ticket prices are generally $20, so this is for you know, general admission. But when we've done the math uh, and considered just the musician's fees, the uh, price per seat averages 40 to $50 per concert. And so people are paying for uh, half of what our actual costs are. And the way that the model that um, we've been able to 
use moving forward is that we have each concert is sponsored by somebody who also cares for the community and also cares for the jazz center and sees that that kind of model works. So each one of our concerts has a sponsor, and that sponsor gives the musicians fees, and therefore we are able to uh, move forward and um, pay and pay those musicians a fair fee and also have that music be something that reaches the general public without being an, an exorbitant ticket price. That's, that's um, a fascinating model and a very smart model. And I think one of the things, just to get back a little bit to what Buzz was saying, is that because the Vermont Jazz Center and, in this case, the Northampton Jazz Festival are both 501c3s, we're able to tax bring, exempt organizations. Or tax exempt organizations. We're able to bring these amazing musicians to our stages for a very, very reasonable fee. You, you know, you have your your sponsors. So do we. And right. I think that 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 five hundred one c three model is very important. So, you know, one of the things that that you know, frankly, I'll be honest with you, Gene. It never really sank in until just this past week that the Vermont Jazz Center is a 501c3. And, you know, I bought myself a series of tickets for the 2022-23 season. And it's like, oh, I can I can donate. I can also That's donate right. to the Vermont Jazz Center, which is VT... Uh, what's what's the URL? VTJazz.org. VT, VTJazz.org um, to make a donation. Um, yep. And that's that's a very important source of funding for a nonprofit music jazz organization, as well as the ticket. So, so when you do it that way, you have a lot of different ways of bringing in revenue uh, of income. Plus, to plus your the, indi- the individual donor. That just think if you have a you know a sibling who just loves jazz, to make a donation in her name, or uh, you know to 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 celebrate another occasion to. To um, how wonderful that feels to receive, oh, look, what was done in my name. Uh-huh. Yeah, vermontjazz.org. That's right, VT Jazz. It's just a simple VT, not Vermont spelled out. So you can go to our website at www.vtjazz.org and purchase tickets. And that was such a beautiful thing that you did, Ruth, last week was to. to purchase four tickets at one fell swoop and that really helps us out because that helps us plan for our season it helps us put some wind in our sails and and other people can do that as well or they can just make a donation to the jazz center at any point in time it's right on our website there's a donate button right on our website and then you can also look and see what kind of concerts we have coming up which is very exciting which which uh, we're going to talk about after the break in another minute or so. But I, I and, and I don't want to spend too much time on on the financials. But you know, kind of leading the jazz festival, I think about this a lot. And I, I again, I learned for the first time on your website that the actual price for that seat that I'm sitting in is forty to fifty dollars. Right. And I think I think that's that's really important for people to understand what the costs really are. Why you're you, you know you can you can do it for twenty dollars if you want to, but please give more. Um, it's it's just a it's an interesting model. Um, we have a lot to talk about the Vermont Jazz Center. Uh, we have Eugene Newman on the on the line. 
who is the director of the center, has been for 25 years. He's an incredible jazz pianist and a composer. And we're going to come right back to talk more about how you can enjoy what's going on at the Vermont Jazz Center. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The top-ranked Massachusetts Minutemen return to the ice at the Mullins Center this Friday for homecoming and a special hat trick-or-treat Halloween. All fans are encouraged to wear their Halloween costumes as the Minutemen take on Merrimack. Puck drops at 7 p.m. UMass hockey tickets can be purchased at umassathletics.com tickets. Or, if you can't make it, listen to all the action right here on WHMP, your home for UMass hockey. 101.5, WHMP. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. In the Northampton Survival Center, queremos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413. 586-6564 or visit NorthamptonSurvival.org Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en NorthamptonSurvival.org If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help we are here for you. Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda estamos aquí para usted. little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring today's homeowner with danny lipford home improvement ideas and advice today's homeowner with danny lipford sundays at noon 1015 1400 and 1240 whmp this is the afternoon buzz with buzz eisenberg 101.5 whmp and how lucky we are to be with ruth griggs take Five segment. We're talking about the Vermont Jazz Center. So, Ruth, you were going to talk with Eugene about what's going on this uh, upcoming yeah, season. Yeah, we, we, we've heard a little bit about sort of the mission and the vision of the center, and now we want to talk about what is coming up and why you need to get yourself up there. So take yeah. it away, Eugene. Wow, it's so exciting. I mean, 
I, I love doing this job that I have of, of curating a season because I put in music that to me feels important and significant, but more than that, it's music that I love to listen to and I want to hear live. So it's it's a guilty pleasure to get to hear these people um, live at our venue and to share that delight with, with the musicians, with all the general public that's here. Um, so let's start with... Uh, Friday, February fourth, because we're, and uh, we're going to be having an emerging artist festival on Friday the fourth and Saturday the fifth of November. So, uh, of November. Yeah, of November. That's coming right up, and that's next week, in fact. And on the fourth, we're going to have uh, four student groups coming from uh, Youth Jazz Ensemble and uh, uh, the BUHS Brattleboro Union High School group. And um, and a group from Northfield Mount Hermon and a group from Keene State and they're going to be performing at 118 Elliott. So the Emerging Artist Festival first starts out with Gallery Walk, which we have in Brattleboro on the first Friday of every month, and then the second day we do other student bands that then play all day, and then they get to have a clinic with the guest artist and then a performance with this guest artist and this guest artist who will be performing on Saturday and giving a clinic at 5 o'clock, is a wonderful guitar player named Dan Wilson, who was uh, on Joey DeFrancesco's Grammy-nominated album right before he passed away, mm. and who also played with Christian McBride and, and is now going to be going on the road with Terry Lynn Carrington. I mean, just a, a, this mm. is an extraordinary guitar player whose music is based on blues and... and um, uh, gospel. So that's coming up on the 5th of uh, mm. November. And then uh, in December, we have uh, Northampton's very own Evan Arnson, who plays clarinet and saxophone and sings. And he will be performing with the Vermont Jazz Center Big Band. One of the things that we love about um, and, and this is something that also goes back to your initial thing, uh, Ruth, of the fact that we're welcoming and we want to have a nurturing environment, we also have our own big band of local professionals who get together and play for our scholarship fund every year. And so that's going to happen on the 2nd of December, and we're doing a tribute to Duke Ellington. So we're doing all Duke Ellington music, uh, most of which is going to be the Ellington arrangements, and we're going to feature Evan, who's just an extraordinary clarinetist and saxophone and, and vocalist, and that's going to be a dance concert. So we love that. And then um, on, and we do one concert a month, generally. And then in, in January, we've got the Mingus Dynasty Band, like you uh, already purchased tickets for, and I appreciate that. And I am going to tell you who is in that band, because this is, I haven't told anybody yet. Um, for the Mingus Dynasty Band, we have Craig Handy on tenor saxophone, Conrad Herwig on trombone, Dave Kokoski on piano, Boris Kozlov on bass, and Donald Edwards on drums. So it's a real top-notch lineup. Really excited about that. And then, um, oh, and Sue Mingus, who during the break we mentioned that Sue Mingus was going to be honored because she just won the NEA National Endowment of the Arts um, it, she just won the uh, the award for the uh, promoter who has done the most in the jazz world over her lifetime, and then wow. she she just passed away two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and 
so we're very saddened by that. Yeah, and she just wow. won this NEA, you know, like this, like the award of the year, and and then wow. she passed away for all of her tireless work wow. promoting the music of Charles Mingus. So did she? Was she alive to receive the award? Um, I think that the ceremony is going to happen in Jan- January, so wow. I don't believe so. No, but she learned about it right before her death because oh, good. We, we all found out about it uh, about a month ago, and then good. The, then the news came two weeks later or so. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a sad story, uh, but I mean, she was ninety when she passed away. Yeah, and she and, she she achieved probably what was one of her lifelong goals, perhaps, and then that's it. <laughs> can't ask for more than that. You can't ask for more than that. Okay, yeah. keep 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 going. Keep going. <laughs> I know there's so much to talk about, but I just <laughs> wanted to say one thing that that one of the cool things about Sue Mingus is that she also had. Um, jazz in the schools program that that where Mingus's side people and the people who were in the Mingus big band would then go into the schools and teach the music and and she also has a Mingus jazz festival and then she has the Mingus dynasty band and the Mingus orchestra she, so she had like these all these different balls in the air. It's also amazing. He died like a half a century ago and she kept him alive for all those years, which is yeah amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. When I mean, did he die? He died like in the seventies, right? I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah, I, think I think so, but... I think yeah. it was in the mid or yeah. late 70s, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me continue to cruise. Uh, on Saturday, the uh, 18th of February, we will be presenting Jonathan Blake, who's one of my favorite drummers. I got to hear him the first time at the Latches Theater when he was playing with Kenny Barron, a concert that we promoted. Uh, we presented at the Latches, and, and he just blew us away and then said he'll come back and do his own trio thing at some point in time. And, you know, you mentioned Chris Potter during the break. Chris Potter is going to be playing saxophone with him. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, Linda O is going to be on bass, and that's very exciting. Um, so uh, I, I, I just can't emphasize how important I think Jonathan Blake is as a drummer because he's the, the person that um, anybody who wants to hear something that's really uh, adventurous and modern listens to him, but he also is able to keep things in, um, accessible and grooving all the time. So he can play like a swing and tune like Have You Met Miss Jones or a bossa nova with Kenny Barron. And then he's also a really creative composer, and, and you know, to play with Chris Potter and Linda, oh, you know that that's going to be a, an incredible concert. Well, and Chris so, Potter, I mean, that's how I would describe him. You know, yeah. you know, he can play as way out as the next guy, but he has such an incredible sense of the structure and the rhythm and the groove, and he just he keeps me hanging in there for that reason. Oh dear, I just got the two minute mark. We're not done oh, yet. We're not done yet. Two All more right, concerts well, to go, right? All right. Well, I'll, I'll do it as fast <laughs> as I can. Then the next concert, which is going to be March 18th, is again Linda O. Oh, and, and I love her. She's a bass player, and, and she will be playing with Matt Stevens on guitar, Greg Ward on saxophone, and Ziv Rabbits on, on drums. And uh, Linda O oh is one of my favorite composers. Um, and, and I really feel like it's important to have female instrumentalists as part of our team. You know, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Then on, uh, we have uh, the Solo Jazz Piano Festival happening on April 21st and 22nd. 
And then I know one of the concerts that's near and dear to your heart is Renee Rosny's and Bill Charlap. We're going to have two nine-foot grand pianos on our stage. And oh, God bless you for doing that. Husband and wife playing together. And this is so rare. I've been trying to get this concert together for four years now. And That's so it's fantastic. Just, it's going to be amazing. And they, it's very rare because they're both so busy. So often I heard somebody saw them do um, a forehand piano like years ago, years and years ago, and they'll never forget it. And I didn't know that they would even do that again until I saw it in your lineup. That, when is that again? That's in April? That's on, on May 13th. May 13th. Uh, 2023. Yeah, and you're coming. You already bought tickets. So. I know. That's so <laughs> exciting. Yeah, Rini Rossness was, was just, she was such a gifted, gifted pianist with Ron Carter here at the Jazz Festival October 1. Right, so. right. That's another reason why people from Northampton might want to come up here, because they were so wowed by her performance there. Precisely. That's, that's great. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Well, I, I love how Ruth opened this segment by talking about what a nurturing uh, environment you have created at the Vermont Jazz Center for musicians. But um, both of you have created such a nurturing environment for those of us who love the art form. And uh, it's so special that around here that we have um, you, Eugene, that we have vtjazz.org a great place to donate money and a great place to donate money in honor of somebody else who loves the art form. Ruth, you've done it again. I so appreciate that you brought Eugene on today. Thank you both. Thank you. Uh, Eugene, we will see you soon, all right? All right. It's so okay. great. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks, Eugene. Bye-bye. Thank you. And thank everybody for inviting us uh, into your ears. And <laughs> we can't wait to talk to you tomorrow. Friday, we're going to have the sheriff... Uh, of Franklin County, uh, Chris Donnellan on, and we're going to have the good thing with Jeff Napolitano, the social justice message of the day. We'll be right back tomorrow. Have a great This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Election Day indeed is coming, and very soon. And we'll be talking about local elections and the five statewide ballot questions with State Representative Mindy Dom and Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page, who will be our guest beginning Friday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at Live 9 and, and again at news 5. And talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's